Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today is Sonia Dubrain Sabotso, co-founder and principal partner of Identity Partners, an investment advisory and financing firm. She is also a non-executive director of RMB, RMI Holdings, Discovery Group, and Remgro. She also chairs a mid-market fund at Ethos Private Equity, and she joins us for our segment on women in corporate South Africa. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. Amalia. It's such an honor and privilege to be here. Um, I'm looking forward to our discussion and, and also good day to your listeners. Likewise, and I think kicking straight in, you started your career in investment banking at Morgan Grenfell Corporate Finance, later Deutsche Bank, in 1996. You were previously executive director of WDB Investment Holdings from 2002 to 2007, where you led several large BEE acquisitions, including Bidvest, First Rand, Discovery, and Anglo Coal in your sea. Currently, you're a co-founder and principal partner of Identity Partners, which is an investment advisory and financing firm and non-executive director. Finance is not a stereotypical profession for women. So firstly, what made you choose this path? Okay, so um, we can come back to the point about the role that women play um, in banking and finance more broadly. Uh, but to your question around what made me choose this path personally was that um, in the latter part of my studies in the early 90s, I, I studied law. Um, and obviously, given the dynamics in our country, I tended towards human rights law, etc. Although obviously, commercial law taught um, all of that were part of the core subjects. But actually having come home then in 1993, which as you know was the transition year to our 1994 elections um, and with the constitutional uh, negotiations taking place in Kempton Park, etc., um, it was top of mind for me that although they were negotiating uh, probably what was then lauded to be the best constitution in the world um, and the most forward progressive Bill of Rights, um, so South Africans would have, you know, a, a entrenched rights which were the best in the world theoretically. However, I then realized then in my early 20s that, in fact, for our people to enjoy those rights, we actually needed to be able to access them. And in economic access was likely to be a big hindrance to that. Um, and so what if you could live in any suburb thereafter? What if you could send your child to any school? If you couldn't afford it, what would our democracy actually mean? And so I then realized I probably wanted to learn more and do more in the economic landscape because that would be the next frontier after, you know, having fought for and won our political freedoms. Exactly. Um, and that and was really what took me into the world in of that, finance. Having access, yes. but not being able to afford it. Yes. And the access is facilitated by um, economic access, you know, although we're talking about a number and, and a range of rights. So that's the fundamental basis on which, on top of the law, I then was fortunate to be able to get a scholarship to study business and economics at, at a master's level. And another point that you raised when yes. you were giving it from your personal perspective, yes. you also said 
we were looking at the role of yeah. women in banking yes. in Africa. Yes, because I wanted to say in positions where large transactions are executed, such as in corporate finance, um, such as in capital raisings, project finance, private equity, etc. You're absolutely right. There is a dearth of women. However, if you look at women in the banking space overall, as in retail banking as well, as employees, there are many, many women. You know, the numbers uh, are, are very decent from a retail, lower-ranking employee point of view. Um, and so there is this disjuncture between oftentimes how financial institutions, well, a lot of institutions behave as in our clients are majority women, Banking clients, you know, like any all other retail clients are majority women. Women are the ones who make decisions about how the household disposable income is spent. Often they're the times that are deciding on the grocery basket, the school fees, etc., etc. However, uh, institutions don't um, manage themselves to address this women's market appropriately. Likewise, the bulk of employees you would probably find um, as bank tellers and so forth are likely to be women. Uh, but again, in terms of how as financial institutions we engage with our employees and make sure that there's sufficient upward mobility for them, I'm not sure we acknowledge um, you know, that womanity aspect as, as mm. part of our, our employee base. So it, it does depend on which pockets of the financial sector we're speaking about. But overall, it is absolutely um, appropriate to then say, what can we do to have more women making decisions at the top in decision-making positions, both from an internal executive point of view, from a non-executive point of view, more external independent, and both from a policy environment point of view, um, to the extent that, you know, you have regulatory aspects that impede women's financial participation, um, and, and to, to make the whole financial sector more inclusive. And what would you say your role within the the WDB investment holdings, how that played out? Oh gosh, that was a very exciting uh, time of my career. I was so fortunate to be involved with a team in the early 20s when there were many BE transactions that were coming to the market, especially because you were getting more clarity around the BE codes and what companies needed to do. Um, And being a women's investment company that was essentially owned by a trust, which uh, did projects in the rural areas, especially microfinance, to uplift women. Although our transactions were commercial transactions, the proceeds were going to the projects for poor rural women. We were really in an ideal space as a BEE partner, especially where the companies were seeking women participation. And hence, you know, some of the companies that you mentioned um, in uh uh, designing their BE deals, um, you know, wanted to include WDB. So we were not the only BE partner in most instances. We were part of a consortium, uh, but it gave us a seat at the table. Um, I do believe that women speaking as shareholders gives a different authority to that voice, um, and especially you know, of course, around the boardroom table. And in those instances, Dr. Amalia, you can picture in the early 90s, there were not many other women around the boardroom table. But it was a start um, and a trigger for a transformation, a broader transformation discussion within those companies. And there you've got representation of women 
sitting at the table, mm-hmm. but also in terms of the benefits that you're trying to, to generate. It was really to help yes. rural women. Yes. And they account for approximately, still today, 50% yes. of our female populace. Yes. So by being at the top, you're able to cascade through the line yes. to ensure that they, they yes. benefited. You're right, it's a two-way flow. And whilst we're talking about having a seat at the table, women occupying leadership roles, I think, is important for a number of factors. One, I think it influences younger women to consider non-typical positions Mm -hmm. as suitable career options. And secondly, to also overcome those stereotypical thinking in society where people are dictating and saying, this is the role that a woman can do and this is a role that she can't do. So by having this inclusivity and having mm. women in leadership, they break boundaries. Yes, definitely. So if we want to see change, we definitely have to have more women in key decision-making roles. Uh, it, you know, it was so gratifying that the first um, African country to have a woman heading up the Reserve Bank, their central bank was South Africa in the form of Jill Marcus. And she was the first chairman of a major banking group, as you know, of APSA. But it did take a Jill Marcus being the chairman to appoint a Maria Ramos to be the first woman CEO of a major banking group, right? And she's still the only one. Yes, and she's still the only one. And then transitioning from Jill Marcus to Wendy Lucas Ball. So, you know, the the same example I often give, it was a Cheryl Carolus chairing up SAA that appointed a Cesar Zimela to be the CEO of SAA. Um, and, you know, oftentimes people think that women don't collaborate well or don't support in each other enough. I totally disagree with that. Um, and so these role models, coming to your point about whether or not young women feel that they have options across the spectrum of careers, I think in South Africa we're very fortunate that there's enough ventilation of, of women's issues um, and the fact that the playing field should be level, that I do hope more and more young women with confidence step forward um, into unusual uh, spaces. I also believe from an investment point of view, and it's something we try to do in our company as identity partners, it's important for women to be investors, equity shareholders, participate in financings in places where you normally do not find women. So as such, we have a mining and resources division. We we enjoy getting involved in inf- the infrastructure space, particularly rail and transport, power and energy. Um, so, yes, you know, obviously they're the easier areas uh, to get into that traditionally women have been invited into, such as, you know, the catering contracts or potentially cleaning contracts. But uh, your point about access, you were speaking about from a career point of view. I also think as women entrepreneurs, um, there needs to be uh, this multiplicity of options that women feel that they can go after. And to pursue careers where you've got great opportunity of of increased revenue and not yes. being demarcated to again, that stereotypical thinking yes. of, this is the catering we function. have to be in the box um, you know I was involved with an NGO on the advisory board called New Faces New Voices um, it is one of the projects which is under the auspices of the Grasha Michelle Trust um, in her quest to bring women into uh, let's, she calls it amplifying voices um, and 
one of the challenges we had there was we were trying to promote this message about women's empowerment on various platforms. And to your point about increased revenues, accessing bigger projects, we always found ourselves being bucketed into either the microfinance space or the SME space, that when we're talking women entrepreneurs, we're, talk, we're speaking SMEs. And yes, there is space for that. There's scope for that. I mean, many large businesses today started off as an SME. So yes, there is that journey of growth. But we did find it challenging, you know, even with um, the sort of... Uh, let's say kudos that came to our NGO, New Faces, New Voices of affiliation to the Grusha Michelle Trust, we were still always trailed downwards. And our job is to also make sure that women trail upwards, that we grow into bigger employers. We get involved in the actual corporate activities. You take agro-processing. Women are very prevalent in the agricultural space. Yet how many companies do they own? You know that are in that space. I could I could give so so many examples. So the, what you touched on about bigger projects, bigger revenue bases, bigger revenue streams. We we also need mm-hmm. to include that in the empowerment commentary around women. And if you don't think big, then your mm-hmm. opportunities are they automatically become limited because yes. the picture becomes smaller. Yes. And by having those bigger visions, that's where you've got yes. greater dreams to realize. Yes. And like you said, society wants to bucket us. It wants to keep us in these smaller size pockets. You know, oftentimes when we have these BE forum debates, where, you know, whether it's APSIP through APSIP or um, working committees, etc., the the whole talk around the 100 black industrialists, you've heard about DTI promoting black industrialists and they need to be 100 by X number of years. And in those forums, I always ask, what's the target within that 100 for women? And if we don't make it 50, you know, what is it going to be? 25. So on what basis? But if we don't include women as a target, we will find that the 100 black industrialists are all men. Industrialization is a big opportunity. Becoming an industrialist is a big ambition. And yet we somehow don't ensure that we've created space for women in that. Thinking along the, the nature of BEE, mm. if we didn't have quotas for BEE, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in now to see that transformation taking place. Yes. And I relate the same thing from a woman's point of view. Unless we have targets that we're trying to achieve, we are not going to see a shift in numbers because people are going to continue to hire or appoint individuals that look like them, that sound like them. Yes, exactly. And when we talk about quotas, I firmly believe it cannot be anything less than 50%, because the second it's less than 50%, for instance, there was a a long period of time where they were talking about 30%. Mm. That means that you are legitimizing 70% Mm. acquisition towards men, Mm. if Mm. we're saying Mm. that, which Mm. is why I think it has to be 50%. This is true. When we speak about quotas and the achievement thereof, I think one of the, let's say, elegant outcomes of all our BE legislation and codes is that, as you know, there's been obligatory thresholds around involving broad-based groups, women, uh, the disabled, youth, um, you know, and and uh, other th- those sorts of categories. And so I think 
women were able to participate in opportunities because it was part of the codification at the time. And, you know, I'm speaking back sort of more than 10 years now. Uh, the reason being in those early days, other geographies, uh, European jurisdictions, etc., who are also grappling with the women's issue, Probably, we probably found that we're ahead of them. You know, as you know, for example, our parliament was one of the most forward looking in terms of allocations uh, of seats for women. So we were fortunate that we got swept up and included within that. Um, but I do think the whole world is grappling with how do we make our companies more diverse, leadership in those companies, both exec and non-exec. Um, and to your point about the 30% uh, threshold, as you know, in the UK, the Davies Commission has given that recommendation, and that is now what most UK companies, especially listed, have to target towards, which is the 30%. So I agree with you, it's far from the 50%, but I think part of the rationale was that there's been some human behavior studies that in order for any grouping, which is the diverse grouping or the other, the the not grouping to have an effect, it didn't, doesn't count if you just appoint one woman onto the board. But as soon as you have two or three, you know, there's a grouping of this diverse aspect that's uh, making a contribution, then you start to see a change. So, you know, perhaps... Uh, part of the presumption is that it should be at, at least 30%. Yeah. Look, 30% is but better than not, nothing. Yeah. So at least but, it's, yeah. it's a start in, in moving forwards. Um, and this is something which I've looked at consistently. So over the years, Business Women's Association do a study on the percentage of women mm-hmm. across boards in the JSE. And they indicated in the last one from 2015 that... On JSE-listed companies, women accounted for 29.3% of exec managers, 21.8% of directors, 9.2% chairpersons, and only 2.4% of CEOs. Yet our population grouping Mm. is well over 50% Mm. in terms of representation. Mm. So I wanted to ask you, you have been successful within the corporate space. You have managed to get onto boards. You have established or co-founded your own company to participate in this space. How do you think we can improve the representation of women? So, um, you know, as I said before, I think so much of it comes with women being able to have a seat around the table, whether it's as key decision makers so that they can open doors and promote other women um, and they can give their male colleagues a real sense of uh, the challenges of a particular environment that may be holding back the promotion of other women colleagues. This has to be done consciously. And I think for that conscientiousness to come through, it needs to go beyond the fact that it is a moral good um, and that it is uh, philosophically in a country like ours, especially, you know, having hard fought equality, that it's a basic fundamental human rights, etc. I think most people that it would it would appeal to them on that basis and they would agree with it. But the conscientiousness of then actually implementing change Um, and bringing about transformation, corporate transformation, I don't mean racial transformation, and economic transformation, I think action could then be triggered when they understand the business case. 
the business case being to your point about the numbers in terms of the population, the populace, and what that does to, you know, whatever sector contribution. You've probably, you're probably familiar with all the, the indices. You know, there's a McKinsey report that goes out, study that goes out. There's a Deloitte's Women's Server. There's a World Economic Forum Economic Survey. I think Goldman Sachs came out with a report a couple of years ago which said that most countries had their GDP dampened by at least 0.5% because they were not harnessing their women population sufficiently. So, you know, when you start to understand the business case, that in terms of performance of businesses, the indices that I've referred to all have different metrics. So whether it's dividend growth, whether it's earnings growth, whether it's from the point of view of profitability, all the way from revenue line, you know, down to the bottom line. But it's been proven that more diverse management teams produce better results and they have better performing companies. And so in the corporate space, the commerciality of it, I think the more that that's understood and unpacked uh, for selfish reasons, I think more and more companies will start to uh, behave differently. It's great that we've got the empirical evidence because I mm. think when you've got something like that, it always substantiates and validates claims. Yes. And perhaps it's about putting it into a business case frame because that becomes a format that people within the corporate space are used to yes. and they can acknowledge and they can see how these measures yes. play out. But I guess the other challenge is that in scenarios like this, you're asking one gender grouping to relinquish power to another and that individual still has a family to support mm. he has attained whatever assets he has and mm. his material wealth mm. and also his his personal ambitions mm. so it is a fine balance and mm. a, a delicate situation on how we redistribute or, or rebalance yeah. um, the, the diversity in the workplace yes and perhaps as you're saying people are not going to do this for altruistic reasons but perhaps if there's an understanding that actually the cake will be bigger, we'll have a bigger pie to share in. So my piece, my portion, even as a man, is going to be decent and, and the, at least the same, if not better. What I've also noticed amongst some of my, my male peers is oftentimes many of them, especially who have girl children, have ambition on behalf of their daughters and they do want the world to, to be a better place for their daughters, more fair, more equal. Um, and so, to be honest, I haven't heard the reticence verbalized in the fashion that you've said, but, you know, one can hardly expect people are going to be that frank about, you know, only taking care of um, their own back pocket, etc. So I, I do think that, you know, once we have more honest and forthright conversations um, our male peers do get it. We have great male champions. We've we've had great male champions in the political space in the past, and I do find in some of the corporates the will is there. Oftentimes the challenge is the activity set to really bring about a, a different mindset with management teams, etc. And I suppose another factor to consider mm. is the way our world is changing. So in terms of enterprises and businesses and in the past we tended to play and trade off of scarcity mm. scarce resources mm. making things your your unique value proposition was because you were the only one that had access mm. to this 
But now, if you look at how everything has become democratized, particularly in terms of new industries, and we've almost created this surplus and abundance, mm. especially in the information age and access. So this is going to be creating more opportunities. Yes. And when you, this is going back to the point where you were talking about a bigger piece of yeah. the pie as opposed to having a smaller piece that the pie is getting bigger. Yeah. And I think that increasingly, as our world is changing, we're moving towards this abundance yes. approach. Yes, uh, and uh, if the mindset could follow that, um, it would be great. And also if we could ensure that there's uh, very, very forward-thinking programs for young women to also wish to be part of this new economy of knowledge industries, of um, you know, probably even job roles and job profiles that we haven't yet fathomed. And I think our creative side probably lends itself well to that. Absolutely. Today, we're talking to Sonia debrain Sabotza, who is co-founder and principal partner of Identity Partners. She also chairs a mid-market fund at Ethos Private Equity and is a non-executive director of RMB, RMI Holdings, Discovery Group and Remgro. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. We spoke a lot about leadership, a lot about role models in a way. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, I think that female role models are important sources of influence, not only in the way that women see themselves by being able to identify with these individuals. You mentioned Jill Marcus, mm. Wendy Lucas Bull, mm. Maria Ramos, but also in terms of how men perceive women mm. because they are seeing the successes that these women are being able to ach achieve. So given that, how do you see the role of female leadership, whether it's in the business space, academic space, or political environment for that matter? Mm. Um, so I think, first of all, women as leaders, once they reach those positions, I think there has to be an understanding that it's been on merit but it hasn't been by virtue of that person being a female uh, and that she possesses and displays all the leadership attributes, if not more, that are required for her role and function. Um, having said that, though, we obviously speak with a different voice as women and we have a contribution to make which potentially manifests itself in a different way, which is all additive to the other male leadership around us. So definitely there's the role model effect um, and there's the um, affirmation that comes for younger women seeing women in these positions and maybe for other women within the organization to feel that the organization um, can cater for their long-term ambitions. Um, but I, I, there's also the form of leadership that comes with not necessarily that woman being a CEO yet, you know, or being the chairman yet. So in other words, you know, it's this concept of until the system catches up with us, let's just get on with it. So let's lead where we are, wherever you find yourself, be an activist in that space um, whilst you're on this leadership path. So it may not well be a leadership type of role that comes with a big um, title. But as women, we should all be conscious to be 
activists where we are. You know, this notion of activism, and you talked in your intro about having achieved political freedom. This year is the 100-year anniversary of the suffragettes having attained the vote for women in Britain. Um, And when we think about, I mean, it's been 100 years. And so in some ways, we've made a lot of progress. But in other ways, over 100 years, are we still having the same sorts of conversations, right? So this notion of activism and leading in forwarding women's issues, we need to do that everywhere. Women are in leadership wherever they are. There's two things that that come to mind. One, for a long time, I think women in leadership roles were essentially trying to compete against male counterparts. So they weren't bringing their womanness and their qualities and attributes they were representing masculine values and almost trying to emulate men. But now we've seen a difference. We've seen that women are allowed to be women and bring their whole selves to those Mm -hmm. environments. Then the second key area when you spoke about was the movement of 100 years. um, The suffragettes were women that had the vote, which I think is... It's shocking when we look at, at the period that we are in... 2018 and 100 years ago the world was very different Mm -hmm. for women but given the segue I'd like to chat briefly Mm -hmm. in terms of the 1956 march Mm -hmm. and the fact that your mom was Mm -hmm. one of the the pioneers in that and yet that's even less Mm -hmm. than 100 years ago and so it's still very much part of our our generation Mm -hmm. on trying to address these types of issues that women are are not equal. Mm. So, okay, the, the, um, what you what you were spe- what you were speaking about in terms of women taking on male attributes in order to feel that they can lead or leading in a very very sort of male style um, made me think about this joke. If you, I don't know if you remember, they used to say Margaret Thatcher was the only man in her cabinet. <laughs> Because and you know it took that style of leadership um, for a woman to you know be able to to get to where she is, but I do think in general management speak uh, you know academic studies um, do highlight the benefits of what they call soft power um, of what they call servant leadership um, and uh, the fact that you know it's not always the most extroverted format that works from a leadership style point of view. So I think all of those attributes, whether they're in a male or in a female, do show that there is, let's say, a feminine side to leadership, which is valuable to organizations. Um, and so women, yes, they, we don't need to take on uh, what, what we are not. Obviously, I think authentic leadership is what today's companies require and appreciate and that authenticity you know comes through in the person be they male or female um, and then reflecting on the 1956 march i think that's why even in our opening commentary we both noted my interest in this area is very much rooted in being grateful for and acknowledging our political freedoms and what our forebears and parents, you know, fought for, uh, which includes, you know, what women activists in the 50s uh, fought for and marched for. Um, But then it is our responsibility and the baton does 
um, you know, pass on. It falls to us to take the struggle forward. Um, and you'll recall, you know, we've talked about some of the successes we've already had in South Africa. Male champions like President Mbeki, who, you know, had a, a woman vice president, etc., um, moving it forward still in this political sphere mainly. And yet private sector and corporate has to catch up, usually on the back foot. And so it's really with that in mind uh, that one then says we can't get complacent, we can't be complacent. Um, and to, to my earlier point, I really believe that wherever we find ourselves, uh, you in your spaces, me in mine, and the listeners in their spaces, they should be activists um, for the empowerment of women. I think it's a wonderful expression, being an activist in whatever space you find yourself. And the truth is that if we become complacent, it means we're going to regress. Mm. On the academic side, you mentioned earlier that you hold your LLB and you had that from, you received a degree from London School of Economics. You also earned an MA in Economics and Business. And I wanted to know if you could please expand a little bit more on achieving your academic qualifications. And the reason I raise this is there are a lot of young women who may be listening to us today who may be at that crossroads in their life where they're mm -hmm. thinking, should I pursue this route or should I further myself with my academic education and may not be certain in terms of the role that academic degrees will play mm -hmm. in their future. So if you could share, how did academics change your life mm -hmm. and what role did they play for you? Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, from a personal point of view, when... I registered for the M, oh, sorry, I'll start again. Um, I think from a personal point of view, when I registered for the LLB, I was interested in the knowledge of the body of law, uh, uh, and not necessarily because I saw myself standing in court arguing cases, but rather the rigor that came from the study of case law, having to read dissenting and assenting opinions, um, having the discipline around uh, studying uh, precedent cases and how that rolled forward into strengthening arguments in a current environment. Uh, also, besides the writing discipline that would come with it and the research, uh, verbal uh, articulation of argument which one would have to do in debating and mooting um, and so it was that roundedness that appealed to me and I just make this comment because as an 18 year old I mean we haven't figured it all out I didn't know what really I wanted to do but uh, the you know the law was a, was a good subject to to read for and so for young women not to pressurize themselves that they have to have it all figured out but I think as long as they go with their their gut feeling um, and the leaning in terms of their talents and, and passions and what they enjoy um, in in uh, the right direction, you know, sometimes things come along as as you go along. Um, and that's a prelude. Remember, I explained as to then why I realized, OK, the blind spot is business and economics. Let me go and study more of that. The The reason the rigor is important and why I knew there's a blind spot. Let me study more on that. And therefore, for young women, you know, when they have that curiosity to pursue it is 
in the kind of work you and I are talking about that we need to do to empower women, it's back to that old adage of, you know, when you're new in a space, you're the newbie. You can't come in and challenge an, an environment on the basis of no knowledge, right? No knowledge, no experience. No, yes, and therefore at least have the theoretical academic knowledge, even if you know perhaps you, you haven't had a chance to get the experience. You, the, there is that saying that unless you really know the rules thoroughly, you, how are you going to bend them? How are we going to make make it work? for example, for our developmental environment or for wanting more financial inclusion. So we have to at least start with the, you know, the, the hygiene of the theoretical and academic basis for the, the, for the then pursuit of what we want to change. And it changes things from being just an opinion yes. to something that is substantiated right. with that rigor behind mm-hmm. it. One of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who have made significant achievements in their respective fields of expertise is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. So some people speak about hard work, perseverance, or a particular person in their life who has influenced them. Could you share with us some of the key factors that you think have driven your success? It's humbling. I'm, I'm not sure I've achieved success yet, but, you know, on the path there, I would very much say um, my upbringing in my family and my parents. I'm very grateful for their contribution into my life from the point of view of acknowledging that their circumstances were very difficult. They were refugees in exile in Zambia, but notwithstanding the difficulties around us, they always supported us. The importance of school and study, you know, was ingrained in us. And also their own personal discipline and sacrifice. Um, and later in life, I came to understand humility because even as a child growing up, I didn't have an idea of the contribution that my mother had made from the point of view of her activities and women's emancipation, the women's march, etc. And it's only hearing it from outsiders and other people when we came back home that we started to understand more of their contributions. I also think having the whole circle of trying to be healthy physically, mentally, spiritually, etc., that balance that we all seek for, um, it's important to try and maintain that. And in my case, my my spiritual life is very important to me, a, a belief in God, having, having a faith um, that one can return to after maybe you've been beaten up over a deal or some <laughs> transaction negotiation, um, you know, th- doesn't sort of shatter your, your self-worth when, when you go through a failure in business so that's been very helpful to me and then I think my my friends my my sisters as I call them the sister groups where we lift each other up we understand the challenges we're going through in our careers in our personal lives you know having that sisterhood that is cheering you on uh, is also very, very important. And as I said before, I believe women are much, much greater collaborators than people always suspect women women compete too much. So broadly, those would be some of the factors which then translate into what you alluded to, which was, 
you know, the value of perseverance, hard work, resilience, tenacity, um, which I think I got from those environments growing up. And you mentioned that you grew up in Zambia. Mm -hmm. So effectively, you were growing up in exile. Yes. Can you share with us a few of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? Um, So there were a few occasions. There was an exile community uh, of South Africans um, who were very fortunate that the Zambian people welcomed us so warmly. They treated us so well. Um, And Zambians were so good to us that even when we used to arrive at the airport, you know, as a child, sometimes we we would go on camping trips and then come back as a group. They treated us as diplomats. Although we had refugee passports, we had a special queue, which was faster than the other queues, etc. So it was this dichotomy of knowing that you're a displaced person where you are. So you are obviously on the fringes of that society. You're not in the mainstream of that society. But at the same time, that society embraces you so well. We went to good schools in Zambia. Um, We had an exile experience, but there was that solidarity that came with it. And oftentimes I reflect on that now when we we are back home about how underappreciated the sacrifices of our neighboring Sadiq states, the sacrifices they made for us, how underappreciated it is by ourselves. And, And I get very sad when you think about the trauma of the xenophobic attacks, etc., given the long history and support in many of the states. My example is simply Zambia, but there are examples in all of the countries uh, um, around us, and yet we haven't reciprocated. Mm. So it was a revolution for everyone. It wasn't mm. just South Africa yes. in isolation. And I mean, they, their economy suffered. They, you know, Literally, there was investment that they didn't receive, uh, affiliations, alliances, um, also had economic effects on those countries, but they bore it willingly. It's a tremendous sacrifice. Mm. It really is, and that's, I, I guess that's the spirit of Africa. Mm. Yes. Now, lastly, as we close out the conversation today, could you please share a few words of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to pass on to younger women that are listening to us today? So thank you for the opportunity. Um, I haven't thought about it long and hard, but instinctively I would encourage all young women to really appreciate the value of who they are, to understand the wonder of being a human being, a female alive at this time with more and more opportunities becoming available to them and more and more deliberate efforts to include them and involve them in things and so for them not to shirk back from the potential of who they are or who they can be but to really embrace themselves embrace the opportunities around them equip themselves I always say especially my seven years with with Deutsche Bank working here and internationally that was like getting my toolkit into my rucksack and that was going to be like my rucksack for life with pulling out various elements from my toolkit as and when needed so equip 
yourself, empower yourself, don't shrink back, go for those opportunities and reach out for help, advice here and there, don't be shy, don't be foolish, don't be afraid of making mistakes, mistakes is part of learning um, and to really, yeah, just just go for it. Great words of encouragement, thank you for sharing. Thank you, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Humanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Sonia Debrain Sabotza, co-founder and principal partner of Identity Partners, chairperson of Mid-Market Fund at Ethos Private Equity, and non-executive director of RMB, RMI Holdings, Discovery Group, and Remgrove.